Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Wood and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we will never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. The whole basis for what I do is one-to-one coaching. It's what I've done for almost 30 years and it's what gets me most excited when I wake up every day. If you've ever considered this option, then I currently have spaces in my tribe starting January 2023. I'll work with you to improve your work-life training balance along with improving your sleep and nutrition all with the aim of helping you achieve your health and racing goals. If you're interested, please email me at simon at thetriathloncoach.com and you can find that link in the show notes below. Now on to today's guest. Andy Blow from Precision Hydration has been a regular on this show. During the pandemic, they started to offer free phone calls to athletes to help them unravel the mysteries around race day nutrition. This has proved so successful that they've now spoken with over 1,000 athletes and created over 100 case studies on athlete race day nutrition. And we're going to be chatting about some of the lessons they have learned that could help you with your own race day nutrition. So without further ado, let's get chatting with Andy Blow. Welcome back to the show, Andy Blow from Precision Hydration. Hello, Simon. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Actually, I got that wrong. I'm looking at the logo on your sweatshirt there. Precision fuel and hydration is nowadays. Easy mistake to make. We were precision hydration for a long time. When 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 you first started, that's what I knew you as. So exactly, uh, yeah. I, I've got to learn to adapt with the times. I? <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. You're not the only one. So I, I appreciate you being here, Andy, today. Um, I uh, I know you were saying just before we started the call that you're not feeling so good at the moment. You're struggling with the lurgy a bit after the kids brought it home from school. I should imagine there's more than a few listeners that are uh, have been in the same boat recently. Yeah, yeah. Parents will know the the pain of having kids at primary school at this time of year. So yeah, just feeling a bit groggy, but but surviving. I'm, okay. I'm on a lamb sip as we're talking. Oh yeah, yeah. With it, with uh, with a little bit, obviously, a little bit of um, one of your effervescent tablets in there <laughs> for extra hydration, no doubt. Right. Well, Andy, look, during the summer, I directed quite a lot of people that I coach, uh, either on my one-to-one basis or from my SWAT group, to take advantage of the 15-minute video calls that you offer. Now, these are free, and and we shared a link in the last podcast we did, and I think um, there were more than a few listeners who also took up that offer. And within those calls... Your, you and your team of experts are able to unpick um, a few personal details about people and try to give them a more precise um, and informed view of what they should be doing with the nutrition and hydration for races. That, would that be a, a reasonable summary? Yeah, when the, the backstory, as you know, but for those who don't know, is that these calls started during the, the COVID-19 lockdowns because we mm-hmm. used to go to a lot of shows and expos and talk one-to-one to athletes and help them uncover, you know, the kind of issues they were having in their fueling and hydration and, and work with them to to um, you know improve what they were improve their their process and their plans. During lockdown, we offered to do it 
it via Zoom because or by, by Google Meets, actually, so that people could do it virtually when we couldn't leave the house. And we were taken aback by the sheer volume of people that wanted to come on and have a conversation with us to to learn a bit more about what they were doing. And as a result, even though we're hopefully, you know, all of that is is now long behind us, the concept has lived on. And we've actually, I think this year to date, we've we've done nearly a thousand video calls. Wow with people to answer their questions and that's the so we've actually built a a sort of built out a sports science team to really help people on that so it's been very very popular Mm. and what you know what sort of changes give us an example if i was to come along um to you and take up one of these calls what what would the what would the process be then Usually what we're asking for is for in advance of the call, the people that get the most out of it usually come to us with a bit of a description of the specific question or problem that they're having. And hopefully with a bit of an idea of what they've been doing with the hydration and fueling to this point so that we can start to preemptively unpick that before we even get on the call. Because mm. there's the variety of topics that get discussed is very, very wide. And giving you a sort of blueprint for you know what's an average call is almost impossible but what i would say is that obviously themes develop there are common questions and there's mm-hmm. common ways that we can help people to look at what they're doing in a different in a different way and i think the best way to describe it would be people imagine they people might imagine that they come on and ask us to help them construct their plan for fueling and hydration but and we, to an extent, we can do that. But it's a 15 to 20 minute call and there's a limit to what you can achieve. Mm. And what I, th- I guess the message to, to promote is that what we're trying to help people with is not so much with their specific plan always, but the process of getting to that plan. Because everyone's plan is ultimately different. If we can help you with the process, then you will ultimately work your way to the best plan. And that's the sort of, might sound like a subtle distinction but it's the, i think more often than not it's the process that people lack as to what steps they need to go through to refine their fueling and hydration because typically that we see a lot of people shooting from the hip or doing what they've always done or doing what their mates have done or what someone what they read in a magazine once and and actually because fueling and hydration is very individual you need to kind of go through a process to mm-hmm. discover what works for you so you you know, if I take out the words hydration and nutrition from that and just think about the general principles of those calls, it, it, it doesn't sound a lot different to what I would do if somebody's coming along and asking me in a 20-minute phone call to try and help them find the right plan um, or the right approach for doing in a race. And you stick in some, you know, for me, I always say to people, look, any plan will work as long as it gets you in the right ballpark, as long as you stick to some certain principles, you know, so it needs to be about you um, for training. It needs to be no, do no harm. So don't get injured or ill. Make sure there's some progressive overload. Um, make sure it's specific when it needs to be and, and make sure you leave time for recovery. And if you, and if you consider, if, if those are your primary considerations, then you can, you know, you need a lot of volume, as much volume you can handle with a sprinkling of intensity from time to time. Right, that's that's it. It doesn't need to be more difficult from that. Then you need to find the solution that fits into it fits into your lifestyle. Well, it sounds like it, you know, with the with the expert knowledge that you have of of the subject and your product and this other knowledge, and then sticking some principles, you end up with like a Venn diagram. You can put people in that sweet spot, and that's where the process puts them. And then 
the tweaking is uh, again down to the different races right so whether you're doing something in the uk in the spring which is cool and temperate or something hot in you know in the middle east yeah make, absolutely make changes yeah yeah exactly that it's making sure that the 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 best way to describe it is that Venn diagram thing, making sure people are in roughly the right zone. Mm. We obviously talk a lot about focusing on the three key components of, of nutrition when you're exercising, which are fluid consumption, electrolyte consumption, and carbohydrate consumption. And getting those three numbers in the right ballpark is what we're looking for. And the process of how you find those out varies from person to person. It has some current common characteristics. Okay, so I think that certainly gives me more of an understanding, and hopefully, the listeners of answering that question how 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 can you how can you point me in the right direction from just a twenty minute call when you know nothing about me? Well, actually, there's a tried and trusted process here that you've been through, like you say, with almost a thousand people now. Um, I'm sure you'd be able to point people in the direction of some of those case studies you shared with me, and um, that will give uh, the listener um, more of an indication, and then. I guess it's just to jump on a call and actually see. Don't don't knock it until you've tried it, type thing. Yeah, I think I think what people have been, what some people have been pleasantly surprised by, and other people, I guess, therefore might be put off by without knowing it, is that the calls. We're a commercial company selling sports nutrition products, and a lot mm-hmm. of people foresee the fact that what's going to happen is we're going to try and sell them a load of products around yeah. something in their throats, and gen- genuinely, we're not there to do that. You know, if um, we a lot of the feedback that we get is that people are pleasantly surprised that it's not a sort mm. of it's not a disguised sales call. Mm. We feel as a business that it's very important that we we would recommend products in our range that might work for you in certain ways if the conversation goes in that direction. But we're equally happy with having a conversation where none of our products get talked about or recommended because for us, our products ought to be a good fit for the endurance sports markets is primarily what they're designed to be used for. Um, but it might be that you've got preferences or things that you've used in the past that you want to stick with. And for us, it's, 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 it's like we, we gain a lot both in terms of what we learn from talking to lots and lots of customers. There's not many companies that talk to as many customers as we do. Mm. We see that as being massively advantageous in terms of future product development, future knowledge development of what we're going to put in our blog and what kind of information we're going to put out there, how we're going to train and upskill the team because we're on a daily basis in encountering firsthand the problems that our customers are encountering and then helping them to solve them. So I think that's that's something important for people to bear in mind if they're going to book a call is that you know don't don't certainly don't expect to be sold to as part of the process. You know, you might you might we might well end up talking about products and services that we have if they're a good fit, but the the way that we communicate to our team doing the calls is is that they've got totally free reign. The, the most important thing is that they try their best to help you solve whatever problems you've come along with. Mm, well, I'll give you some feedback now, Andy. Um, I would say that nearly everybody. I can't. I don't have exact figures. I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass here. Um, nearly everybody that I pointed in your direction last year, number one said the calls were great and gave them a much better sense of what they needed to be doing on race day and made them more mindful about that. And number two, they bought your products. And number three, actually, it worked on race day. So, you know, happy happy people all around. And, and I think what you're saying about building a trust and relationship uh, and relationship with people first is is the same for any business isn't it you know and once they trust you it's a lot easier then 
um, for you to build on that. Absolutely. And I think that's sports nutrition in the past has been, has been, you know, sort of beset with a lot of problems in the industry around the kind of, I don't know, its, it's origins are in this sort of big food type industry, selling mm-hmm. tactics of making very bold claims about mm-hmm. what products can do mm-hmm. and then competing on price to get products, you know, and, and competing on distribution to get products in front of people. And mm-hmm. actually the, the further along those kind of roads you go, the more it comes about shifting units to the consumer rather mm-hmm. than actually solving problems. The backstory, as you well know, to us as a business was that we started out trying to help people solve hydration problems with racing because mm-hmm. that was a passion project for me because it was something that I'd had such a, a tough time dealing with as an athlete myself. And it sounds a bit silly that you would start going down a route in business without a direct large commercial goal. But genuinely, this was an add-on service to me working with athletes when I was doing a lot of what you're doing now, which is coaching and training and and that sort of stuff. It just so Mm. happens that then I've separated out into this niche. So I think that's where we're trying to we're trying to break the mold a little bit. And it gives us a, a unique selling point in the industry that if you're if you're someone who needs a little bit of help and assistance with what you're doing fueling and hydrating on race day then i would hope that more and more people are recognizing that we're the, we're the people to chat to as your first port of call yeah i you know i've been having been around as as long as we have andy you'll remember when power bar was just that, that sort of mom and pop business and you used to get those little adverts saying yeah we developed this product because we needed something portable to take on and you know i bought into that and i started using power bar and i loved it until the time when i almost broke my teeth off when it got a bit cold yeah. but um and it and, and then the next time when it pulled all the paint off my bike after i'd sort of taped them yeah. to the top of my top tube but um, I started to go off the products a little bit when they sold out to Nestle and I started seeing them appearing on the shelves of Tesco's because that's when it's all about volume and uh, and big sales, isn't it? And less about the individuals. Definitely, yeah. And that's that's kind of the life cycle for a lot of products, isn't it? In order to yeah. reach like, the middle of the bell curve, then at some point companies or products get bought up and swept up and sold to a larger market. But we're we're at the point at the moment where the, the good thing about the sort of internet revolution over the last 15 years in e-commerce and that sort of thing means that we can reach a really really broad audience i think we've shipped products to people in 77 countries this year from wow. our hq you know not all leaving from our hq in the uk but we're, our company is based out of the uk and mm. even 20 years ago that was a very difficult thing to achieve you needed sophisticated yeah. distribution to do that now you need a website and you, you've got you've got to do your homework with regards to things like product labeling and making sure that you're doing mm-hmm like things with importing food products into different countries but we can reach a truly global audience within that little niche that we operate in Mm. from from Christchurch Dorset and that's that gives us a lot of scope because I still think although we've had a good push in the last year or two with increasing our visibility particularly in triathlon you know the endurance sports market goes far beyond that and there's a lot that you know we we probably probably don't even know we exist as yet and we're Mm. excited to you know and, and what we're seeing is more people from ultra running and cycling and stuff like that starting to jump on calls, which is cool. So it gives us that sense of where people are starting to see mm-hmm. usefulness in our products and where we might go next. Mm. 
Brilliant. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about those case studies because you've, uh, as much as you've been doing all these video calls, you've been helping out some of um, some of the athletes that you're ambassadors and your professionals that you support. And you haven't just been providing them with product and just letting them get on with it and posting photographs of them coming across the line. You've actually followed up and done some quite in-depth studies on um, what you recommended and then what they've used and and then got some feedback from the athletes. And it's, it's, um, it's really interesting. Are they, are they publicly available to look at those case studies? Yeah, the case studies, if you go to our website in the top menu banner, there's a, there's a bit that's got the title athletes. You can hover over that and jump into the case studies from there. And what the case studies are, are breakdowns of exactly what um, different athletes ate and drank during mm. performances. And they actually tell a little story about the race as well. So mm. you get to see, you know, for example, if I jump onto the page, as it stands today, we've got the most recent case study is a case study of um, Ironman Arizona, which happened the other week. It's from Danielle Lewis, who was third in the ladies' yep. race. It tells yep. you how much fluid she had per hour, how much sodium per hour, how much carbohydrate per hour. Yep. And then it even sort of breaks down the story of her race, which is a, which is quite an interesting one for Danielle because she had all sorts of bike mechanicals and mm-hmm. Troubles, but still managed to prevail and, and run through with a very very fast run at the end to get up onto the podium and so it, and whatever sort of conditions whether you're a male or a female you should be able to find a case i think we're approaching 200 case studies now of different events so there should be you can filter them by sport you can filter them by temperature you should be able to find case studies which which give you an insight into what you know predominantly top athletes are doing in those kind of races mm. to help you s- sort of calibrate your own thinking on what you might want to be doing from a fueling and hydration perspective if you're taking on a similar challenge yeah well w- w- i'm definitely going to share the link to this page in in the show notes i'm going to make it really obvious because i think um there's some fantastic reading in there and um there's the studies cover a whole range of athletes, but but not just that in different distance events and in different conditions as well. And and I think that's really important. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about having a flexible approach because racing an Ironman in Bolton in a normal British summer temperate conditions is completely different to perhaps Ironman Arizona, which could start off cold and then get really hot because it's in the desert. Yeah. Um, and some of those athletes might have, um, raced in Kona a few weeks before where it starts off hot and humid and it just gets hotter and hum- more humid. Yeah, absolutely. Environmental conditions, we see from those case studies, you can definitely see the kind of impact that they have on people's intake, especially obviously from a hydration point of view. Mm. What's interesting from the case studies is quite often you can throw a relatively small net over the amount of carbohydrate that these athletes are taking in per hour during long races especially if they're racing very hard and fast but the fluid recommendations are really really are all over the map i think we've seen less than 300 milliliters an hour in some ironman events when it's been very very cold Mm -hmm. right through to someone who took in just over 1.5 liters an hour in kona in the hot and humid conditions so the, Mm. the differential in fluid consumption and along with that electrolyte consumption is is massively variable but by capturing that data that real data from the field i think that complements what's in the peer-reviewed science quite nicely and between the two of them you can get a sense of 
you know, what reasonable ballpark figures for carbs, fluid and sodium look like. And that is a great starting point to say to people, okay, well, at at the very least, we know it's probably somewhere between these two numbers. And then what we're doing is drilling down into your personal characteristics, your experience, your goals, the speed at which you're racing and so on, to try to say whether you'll be in the middle of those recommendations, whether you're likely to be at the upper end or the lower end. Because one thing we know for sure is that the more of this kind of case study data we gather, the less likely it is that we're going to we're going to see we'll see more people in the middle of the curve and less people at the outliers so you know are we going to see many people drinking more than 1.5 liters of fluid an hour in an ironman i would it, i would suggest not you know that really sort of does feel like a an upper or close to the ceiling amount that we'd see and by the same token we wouldn't expect to see people taking much less than two or three hundred milliliters an hour mm. um, so so we start we start to be able to actually constrain the parameters that you should be working in to help people avoid mm-hmm. going well outside of what what works and what doesn't. Mm. So, have you been able to learn some general lessons then and general guidelines about different distances of events, regardless of regardless of the climactic conditions, which we can sort of come into in a moment in what what the nuances there. But um, could are you able to give rough guidelines to people for a standard distance seventy point three and Ironman in terms of ca- calories that need to be consumed or fluid? Yeah, we can start to sort of draw some generalizations. And actually, those generalizations are built into, and the data that we get back from those are built into our fueling and hydration planner, which for most people is the best place to start if you if you want to get a handle on what you might need to take in as an individual for whatever distance triathlon you're doing. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner on our website, input your details, details about the race. And and we've used some of the data from the case studies to inform the algorithms that are now generating basic recommendations for people. But, you know, for instance, the thing that you notice with we haven't got as many short course races in the database because they are potentially less interesting from a hydration and fueling point of view on the basis that if you go into a short distance race well carb loaded and well hydrated then the need to take on fluid electrolytes and calories is relatively small you definitely benefit from taking some on especially if it's hot you'll benefit from some hydration and certainly a level of fueling is helpful because for for a lot of athletes on a short course triathlon you'll be out there for more than two hours but it's not necessarily a defining factor that's going to make or break your race like it will be at Ironman. So we tend to see, you know, successful athletes taking somewhere between 30 and 60, maybe 70, 80, 90 grams of carbohydrate during a, an Olympic distance triathlon. But those upper, those upper amounts are sort of the preserve the elites, really. I think the, the fueling requirement for, for doing a, an Olympic distance triathlon. I'm looking at the case studies we've got is relatively slight. So that that will be somewhere between one and three of your uh, gel sachets, wouldn't it? Really, because they're exactly, coming thirty yeah. gram. Th- those one hit things are thirty grams. Yeah, or one of those bottles that you have, one of those large packs with the with the um, little squeezy top. They're ninety grams, aren't they? So you can. Um, I would say, you know, for an Olympic distance triathlon, the the typical, like we have a drink called PF60 drink mix, which is like an isotonic electrolyte drink mix. It gives you about 30 grams of carbohydrate per half litre. So a bottle of a a bottle of a 500 or 750 ml bottle of something like that on the bike plus a gel is going to see you the majority of the way around an Olympic distance triathlon for most people. 
you might there might be a requirement for a bit more fluid for a heavy sweater in really hot and humid conditions and you might find that in really cold conditions you actually want to take gels rather than a drink because you don't need that much fluid on the bike but in essence you know in olympic distance triathlon we see people doing the majority if not all of their fueling and hydration on the bike because getting off and running 10k if if you're well hydrated and well fueled you shouldn't need to take much in at all and and actually we all know that taking stuff in when you're running as fast as you can over 10k is pretty tricky Mm -hmm. very often you see certainly at the elite level people actually taking the gel or a uh, too many drinks on the run portion of a an olympic distance try the exception might be if it's exceptionally hot where they're racing and mm. even then probably i would say is likely to see elite athletes dumping water over their head as you are drinking it because yeah yeah, yeah. the biggest factor is staying cool where things start to change quite a bit you do see a bit of a change at half ironman because fueling becomes way way more critical and hydration will as well if it's if it's hot and humid but we'd see we'd we'd be based on the data we'd be recommending athletes take at least sixty grams of carbs an hour on the bike in a in a half Ironman and, and maybe more because one of the things that we've noticed in the case studies for half Ironman is that even at the elite level athletes tend to um, front load their their fluid and calorie intake so we all know that biking it's easier to carry access and consume calories mm-hmm. and fluid so by taking more in per hour than you need as the overall average for the race on the bike you can probably set yourself up for a a better run where you also don't need to slow down as much or take as much fluid and carbs in when you're when you're actually on the run itself Mm -hmm. it's not unusual for us to see in the pro ranks for people to take 90 100 maybe even 110 120 grams of carbs an hour on the bike but then very little on the run because for a pro athlete they, if it's a if it's a guy these days, they might only be running for between an hour and ten and an hour and fifteen minutes, mm. which is not you know is not really that long if you get off the bike really well fueled. Yeah, you're going to probably want to take in a couple of gels or some or some energy drink or some coke or something from aid stations. And if it's really hot, you might need some fluids to to stop yourself from becoming seriously dehydrated. But generally speaking, if you've done a great job of fueling the bike. And, mm. and on the bike your requirement for fueling on the run is is decreased so you know that's why when you see recommendations from our calculator you'll see them being a bit heavier on the bike in a half ironman than you would on the run for example yeah okay and um that i guess that becomes even more pronounced doesn't it when you move on to ironman then in terms of the amount of um fluid and fuel that people need to take and we're getting up towards those extremes you're just talking about of some people consuming one to one and a half liters yeah definitely i think yeah the, the iron man is where we all know that if nutrition is ever going to be described as the fourth discipline of triathlon it is mm-hmm. is in iron man where that makes the most sense and the reason i suppose just backtracking and looking at half iron man i think half iron man you can definitely you can spoil a good race by not getting your nutrition quite right. But we've seen examples and a really um, a really good one to go and read if people are interested is Emma Pallant-Brown at 70.3 World Championships this year in St. George. Okay. Yep. She, she came third overall, you know, which is obviously a, a fantastic result at the World Championships. Right. Um, 
Emma only took about 28, 30 grams of carbs an hour during that race and very little fluid because it was so cold. She found she couldn't, she couldn't drink her drink mix on the bike and she couldn't, she was wearing gloves and couldn't open her gels very easily. Mm-hmm. So she took in way, way less fluid and way, way less carbs than we would have recommended and that than we've typically seen her take in races of that length. Now she managed to run very well and, and get to the end. And she took in, she actually, rather than front loading, she took a lot more energy drink on the off the course on the run to try and keep her levels up and mm. finish in decent shape. But but it's it was without executing what we call an optimal nutrition plan. And so it shows what you can do. If your Emma was very well carb loaded before the event, which I think played into her favor, the conditions were cool. So she didn't sweat a lot. So that would have helped not having to require a huge amount of fluid. And the, the relatively light energy intake is really probably a function of that carb loading and also just how fit and well prepared and determined she was. Because we we all know the stories of Ron Hill and the guys that used to run marathons with nil by mouth they thought it was tough to not drink or eat anything (laughs) those guys were running under 210 so they were running fast and they were doing and they were proving that you could do some pretty long endurance events Mm. without anything in emma didn't take nothing in and she was racing for nearer to four hours than two but she took took what on paper looks like a very light amount and i think that's an interesting study to look at not in saying that well if she can do it off that it it proves that you can take very little in it's more that at the extreme end when you when you're really fit really well carb loaded really motivated it's amazing just how much you can do how well you can do off a relatively light fueling plan i still think that and we've chatted with emma since that race and i i still think that adapting a plan for cold conditions where you know you kind of make your fuel more accessible and don't try to get it through liquid so much is a is a smart move because ultimately then you're more likely to you're less likely to run the risk of falling off a cliff on the run is important Mm. also we chatted with her about recovery after the after the race and how she felt that she'd never been so stiff and sore after a race and a lot of the a lot of the scientific evidence is that when you become very glycogen depleted you know, it it leads to more muscle damage, which is mm-hmm. another factor for that plays in the favour of fueling a bit more aggressively. But that that for me was an interesting example of where someone doesn't do something that's necessarily optimal on paper, but still comes out with a good result. Um, compared with say an Ironman, where and you can get you can semi get away with that maybe in a half Ironman. I think in an Ironman, if mm. you follow that far short of your fueling targets we've not seen a a good example of that in a case study yet but i would imagine that if you fall that far short of your your fueling targets like emma would have been targeting around 90 grams an hour on paper she actually achieved 30 so it's like a third of what she was aiming to take in i would hazard that if you took a third of what you were planning to take in during an ironman the wheels are very, very likely to come off just because the extended length of the day you're out there, you're going to run into glycogen depletion. And yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about um, if you if you well um, carb loaded beforehand. I can't remember what the exact sort of quantity of carbohydrate, you know, glycogen that your muscles store. Is it 200 grams? No, it's more than that. 500 grams. It could be more like five or 600 grams at least. Yeah. So you, you, five or 600 grams. And if you think that she probably, 
she's probably burning a lot of glycogen in a half Ironman, but it's not it's not like a standard distance race where it's almost entirely fueled by glycogen. So, and and most of these well, all of these athletes are really well fat adapted, aren't they? So, um, you know, they're probably and they're efficient at moving. They're efficient on the bike. They're efficient in the water and on the run. So. If you were just topping those sources up a little bit, you could probably get, you could probably just maintain your blood sugar levels and your glycogen levels to get you across the line. But that's in four hours. But yeah. certainly operating at a slightly lower level than that for nine or 10 hours, you, you like you say, you're going to, your tank's going to be empty unless you add in some more in, aren't you? And I also think, you know, a lot of age group athletes, you know, there's not many of us who are cracking a half Ironman in four hours. You know, it's, it's usually at least, you know, high fours and fives for most age groupers could be as much as six, six and a half hours or even a little bit more. So it's not, and I think that's why it's it's interesting to look at these case studies, but you can't, you have to look at them, you have to look at them in, in aggregate some of the time as opposed to looking at one individual case and drawing mm-hmm. too many conclusions from it. What One thing that we've seen from the, the Ironman case studies that differs quite a bit from the half Ironman ones is that, the, the the more successful athletes do appear to keep manage to keep their calorie intake up quite deep into the run, like almost right to the end. Okay, because clearly during a an eight or nine hour race, if you're a, or seven something hour race, if you're a top pro, you're you're going to have you know if you don't fuel a lot, you're going to burn through all of your muscle glycogen or the vast majority of it well before the end of the race. So you are in a position where you're putting in carbohydrate as fast as you can and still oxidizing it faster than that so you're always running at a deficit but we've seen some really incredible efforts with with athletes like um one of the one of the best studies case studies to look at um for that i would say is um, leon chevalier's one from kona this year leon was seventh in kona and he averaged 105 grams of carb per hour um which is know really really impressive but he kept a lot of that i can't remember what his exact um carbohydrate per hour on the run was it'll be in there it was a hundred and i think he did 140 grams an hour on the bike and then over 80 grams an hour still on the run Uh which is really really strong on the fueling side and he he did have a bit of a wobble towards the end of the marathon, but actually that was probably a bit more to do with overheating. Managed to cool himself down at an aid station, and then he dropped to about ninth place and worked his way back up to seventh again and was heading for sixth, actually. He just ran out of road. And that, for me, when you can finish strongly, it's a good mm. indication that you've got that fueling plan very right. I think a lot of people, even at, even at a very high level, a lot of people ex- – have this kind of acceptance that there's going to be a level of fade towards the end of an Ironman race. Yeah. And although, although there's a lot of reasons why you fatigue and will probably slow down a bit, I think if you're very fit, if you pace yourself well and you fuel really well, that amount of slowdown doesn't need to be catastrophic. And mm-hmm. certainly we all know that the vast majority of age group athletes will really, really drop off on their pace in an Ironman. Well, and certainly at the top end of the race, it's even then, it's not about who's the fastest athlete either, is it? It's who slows down the least in in that sort of second part of the run. Um, and we've we've all seen examples of races with somebody who's got a handsome lead, but just crumbling in the last sort of fifteen k because because they haven't taken care of that sort of stuff. And it's not necessarily the other person that's coming up behind them has accelerated; they've just been able to maintain the pace for longer. 
Definitely. I think that's a really important point. It's about, it is about maintenance. I mean, when I, I had the fastest run split many years ago, a couple of sort of fairly decent level half Ironman races, but if the, I remember one of them at Sherbourne, it was on a multi-lap course. Mm-hmm. And I had the fastest run split and I paced it probably the most evenly, but where I had the fastest split by far was the second or the yeah. third out of three laps. I can and- remember that I was there actually, Andy, and I, and I do remember that you were making your way through the field strongly and you seemed to be, every time you came past me, you just seemed to be running better than everybody else. You weren't, you weren't, your form wasn't fading and your pace wasn't dropping off nearly as much. Yeah, I'd managed to keep the pace up. But what what was interesting about that when I looked at it, because I was convinced when I looked at the splits that I would have run faster on the the last lap because I'd ploughed through so many people. But Mm -hmm. I was still a minute or two slower than on the previous laps. It's just that everyone else had created even more than that mm-hmm. and that was that was very instructive for me in terms of thinking about you know when you pacing it's like when you saw Kipchoge break the world record again recently mm. he went through the half with a group of people in 59 something and I think ended up running 201 didn't he and mm-hmm. and so he slowed down in the second half and it looked like he was pulling away from everyone, which technically he was, but it was it was the rate of deceleration was slower for him than it was for yeah. everyone else. And that's yeah. that's an important thing to to keep keep your head keep in your head is that this the fueling and hydration that you're taking in on the to, on the latter stages of a, an Ironman is there to support you keeping that pace steady or as mm. close to steady as you can. And if you can achieve that, that's actually remarkable. That's not what many people manage to do at all. And it will almost guarantee that you move forward from wherever you were halfway in the run you know, as a guarantee. You can see this a lot. If you look at um, if an athlete's had their heart rate data and their pace data from the watch, and you can uh, across a marathon, you can see it very, very clearly. What what they call decoupling that in the first half of the marathon, they're running along at a nice pace, probably too fast. And from about twenty to twenty five k, you can see those two lines starting to separate. And yeah. and then in the last k, there's a huge, there's a huge separation. And it's clearly obvious that they've either you know that the time that they wanted to achieve, they were faster than that to halfway. And then they drop right off, and they were probably capable of the target time, yeah. Um, but they just didn't pace it right, or they didn't get the nutrition right. One or both of those. And then when they come back and chat with you, they say, "Oh yeah, I need to be fitter to run that sub three and a half hour marathon." Actually, you don't need to be any fitter. What you need to do is just have a better strategy for pacing and a much better strategy for nutrition. So, if we work on that in your training, rather than trying to get faster or do more miles actually we'll probably get closer to your target yeah definitely i think that's and that's a big that's that's a big point for ironman nutrition is that we typically when we have these calls with people it's rare it's becoming less rare but it is rare that people are committing to really practicing their race fueling and hydration in training and that for me is a is a big is Mm -hmm. a big area where there's easy gains to make if you can practice your your the level you know the sort of aggressive level of fueling and hydration that you're going to use in a race in hard training sessions in mm. hard runs in hard long bike rides and hard brick sessions for me there's two massive benefits to that the first is the literal practice that it gives you to make sure you can hit the numbers that you want to hit it trains your gut to be able to tolerate those numbers and gives you a bit of psychological reassurance that mm. you've you've rehearsed it and you've practiced it on race day and then linked to that is the fact that 
if you eat and drink more during these sessions, you're you're much more likely to recover faster and more completely. And so actually for consistency and continuity of training, you're likely to find that you do much better. I, I remember when I was doing, when I was training full time, I used to quite often do a very, very hard bike session on a Saturday morning, a chain gang with um, Julian Jenkinson. And oh, yeah athletes down in the new forest and it was a very very like we it was a race level effort really for it would have been if julian was on the front (laughs) yeah it was he was just on a mission to drop everyone every week and it was something it was a session that literally brought my cycling on leaps and bounds but what i found was that i just learned through trial and error if i wanted to train on the sunday after doing that session i had Mm -hmm. to think very very aggressively like in the build i had to treat that like a race because otherwise what would happen is i'd get the potential gains from that Saturday ride were compromising my ability to go out and do a long run on Sunday because my legs were destroyed. Mm. But if I could manage to like, actually I would, people used to laugh some of the time because you take a few gels or whatever. And it was, it's often frowned upon. It's like, Oh, you're not racing. Why are you taking gels and all that? Mm. And well, you sort of, that was just a pure survival instinct to know that if I was going to be able to train hard the next day, but it took me a long time to learn that. And I still, I, I felt quite bad doing it. I felt like I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. Like I should be learning to train on less fuel or whatever. Well, there's an interesting point there, right? I guess if you, if you were out riding in a group, you know, you go to one of these places where the big groups go out, like in Boulder or San Diego, and you've got Craig Alexander on the back and he's munching through his gels and, and taking all his nutrition in, you'd be looking at him going, yeah, but he's a world champion. You know, that's why he's a world champion. Well, he, he didn't start doing that when he was a world champion. He's the world champions or, or the people who hit the goals regularly are the people who, who have different habits, aren't they? And yeah. that, that's why we follow them. And um, I guess that's all you were doing was, was demonstrating a professional approach to what you were preparing for, but it does bring me back to, uh, this idea of practicing. I made a note about that earlier and you talk about tolerance. You know, if 90 grams of carbohydrates, three, three, you know, fairly sizable packets of uh, gel packets per hour is quite a lot. And if you do that over three or four hours, you can start to feel quite queasy. But of course, there is a tolerance. So you have to practice. Yeah. Now, going back to these free conversations that our listeners and our athletes can have with your and you and your colleagues i guess that if you want to practice this stuff you probably need more than two or three weeks because obviously if you're training for a a half or a full you're going to probably have two weeks 10 you know two to three weeks of tapering in there so the big block of training is going to take place at least four to six weeks out from that event so these phone calls shouldn't be the week before just to dial in your nutrition. You want to be getting on top of this pretty early before you go into your race specific training so that you can actually build this in as much as you're doing these specific bike sessions where you're trying to do, you know, um, a damn blues session where you're doing blocks of 30 minutes at a few percent over your goal race wattage. And everybody's really precise about that. That actually needs to be combined with a very precise approach to training nutrition as well in prep for the race. Yeah. And so yeah, you have yeah. to you have to have that knowledge of what your strategy is going to be several months out. Yeah, it's a really good point. If we could if we could advise people how to get more out of the calls with us, it would be don't book them in the week before you race. <laughs> because 
it's human yeah. nature and we'll always if someone books a call with us on a monday and they're doing an ironman on the weekend we'll always take that call and we'll always try to do anything we can to advise them on the the final last minute details uh, and I, I don't see human nature changing enough that the majority of people don't stop doing that but if if people want to get the most out of it actually booking those calls six eight ten twelve weeks mm-hmm. out from a, a goal race is probably much more fruitful because yeah we can then hopefully advise you on mm. and figuring out and if you come to that call already with a little bit of knowledge about how much carbohydrate and fluid and salt you're taking per hour at the moment that mm. gives the basis of a starting point where it's like well if you can comfortably take 50 grams an hour at the moment we know that probably nudging you up to starting at 60 grams is not out of this world and then building it up from there and to your point about you know how how long is it going to take to to gain more gut tolerance and stuff there's no there's not been a huge amount of research in that as yet there's been bits and pieces but the sort of consensus seems to be around the fact that somewhere between six and ten weeks is a is a decent amount of time we're doing we're doing up to a couple of sessions a week where you really try and fuel in the way that you would for a race is a good period of time and a good strategy to actually make a meaningful adaptation. Mm. And then the one of the interesting theories um, has been that if you, were, let's say you were aiming to get up to 80 grams an hour for your race, mm. then about a month out or three weeks out from the race, probably when you are doing some of your peak hardest training sessions, you you actually go slightly above that. So you go up to 90 grams an hour, but then you right. step down for the race because one of the big things that derails races for people is GI upset. Mm. And I think we've talked about this before, but you you can't truly simulate a race in training. You can't simulate the stress and the anxiety and how hard you're going to push and how you, you can't do the race before you do the race. Mm. So it does seem in some ways, it seems quite prudent to overtrain your gut to say yeah. a tolerance in training of 90 grams an hour but then actually to come back down a little bit on race day, rather than roll the dice, why not say, okay, if I can stomach 90 grams an hour in training, I've, I've sort of shown myself that, but it was maybe pushing the upper limit. Why would I not just bring that down to 80 grams an hour? Because the, the risk to reward ratio starts to get a bit skewed towards risk of GI upset if you're pushing the envelope on race day. And everyone's going to be a bit different on that. And I would say there's a there's a lot of like listening to your body and figuring out how you feel. But I kind of quite like that idea of overtraining a little bit your gut with a higher amount and then pulling it back a tiny bit on race day just so that you've got a, a bit of comfort zone built in. We we do that in our physiological training, don't we? We push a bit yeah. harder. We we you know we've got a hundred. Well, maybe not very often for Iron Man, but if you're doing a half. Um, you know, it's 90k, but we'll probably go out and ride 120k so that we just over distance it. We do definitely do that for standard distance races. Um, it seems commonsensical that you would do that for your nutrition as well. Um, yeah. and, and back to your point about adaptation six to 10 weeks that's that's how long it takes the body to adapt to other things. You know, it takes that's how long it really takes to, to start noticing some uh, proper strength gains. That's that, that's probably the about eight weeks is probably the amount of time we'd suggest to people to um to test regularly so you can see some meaningful improvements so i, I guess stands to reason that the gut probably being another muscle would take the same amount of time to adapt that other muscles do 
I think I think that's partly what it's it's based on. I think it's also based on what's realistic and reasonable. You know, you're not uh, there is there's, you're not going to start doing this 12 months out from a race, are you? Because you're training. It needs to coincide with the the ramping and the training volume. Because in order to truly test that, the the effectiveness and the tolerance of a of a good training protocol, you're going to need to be training at a level that that is close to your peak. So that's what tends to happen in those final few weeks as a build-up. And and I think if if most people took an honest look at where they're at with their training versus their their nutritional preparation, the vast, vast majority of athletes are not anywhere. They're, a lot of athletes are training really, really effectively to a plan, which is very calibrated and building up to the event. The vast majority are not alongside that really really focusing on training their nutrition so that that is somewhere where we do see a big difference between pro athletes that are get are getting the right advice and are sort of acting on that rather than the average amateur athlete who's identified quite rightly that training is the biggest piece of the puzzle that determines how well you're going to do on race day and so he's putting all their eggs in that basket but he's not necessarily looking at Mm. the adjacent thing of, of fueling and hydration to support it so you made a really interesting comment about emma pallant brown and her post-race recovery and and maybe that was um slowed down a little bit and she was a lot a lot more fatigued and sore than normal because of the limited amount of carbs that she'd taken yeah. in on race day and you made a point about training as well on those big rides that you were doing. I think that's something else that's a bit overlooked with athletes is that in order to be able to fulfill that plan and get the consistency and turn up every day, which is, you know, I chatted with Will Clark last week and he said, if he went back in, in, in time to when he was a young man, he wouldn't probably have tried to, to smash out quite as many high volume weeks because trying to do that led to, um, a lack of consistency, not not just because he was tired and fatigued, not necessarily injured. Consistency regularly comes up. Our dear friend, Bernie, right? I went on a camp. I think I've mentioned this to you before. 1989, I went on a camp with Bernie in Israel. And I've still got it in the back of a training diary somewhere. I wrote it on the inside cover. Consistency is the key to success. Right when I was starting out on my triathlon journey and I knew nothing, Bernie wrote that. And, and you know, and that Bernie will have learned that from you know, from his skiing days and from people, Lydiard and all those people going back to the fifties and sixties, it's the overriding principle. And yeah. in order to turn up every day and do the training, you have to be recovered. And I think perhaps people forget that on those Sunday rides when they're trying, they've read that fasted training is good. So they're going to limit the calories and they're going to come back and then they're going to get back. And then they're eating everything, but it's not necessarily the best nutrition, you know, in order to be consistent with your training before you even get to race day, you have to recover well. Yeah. And, you know, you on the bike trait and nutrition forms a big part of that. And, and actually considering exactly what you're going to eat when you get home. You know, how many people get home and they've got no food prepared and so they just go and eat what's available, which is usually not the right stuff. Yeah, no, it's very common. I mean, one one thing that's opened my eyes recently is we've been chatting to a a pro a top pro tour cycling team who's interested in using our products for the for the forthcoming season mm -hmm. and so in order to start to look look at costing up what what it what it looks like for them to use our products i was curious as like how many gel, energy gels does a pro tour cycling team <laughs> use yeah and um I was like pretty gobsmacked by the number, but they explained that it's not only do they race a lot of race days, 
they obviously encourage the riders to use a lot of the same products in training as consistently as possible. So how right. many jets do you reckon they reckon they would go through in a season? Uh, well, I, I thought when I was just trying to think about this, when you said you were gobsmacked, I thought it was going to be a, a really low number. So how many athletes are we talking about in their, in their squad? It'd be, I'm, I'm, I'm it's going to be a, a bit of a guess, but it's a, across under 23s, women and men. So it's probably going to be, I don't know, like 50 or 60 riders, something like that. Ooh, I'm going to have to do some very quick math. So 50, 60 riders across how long are we talking? How many months? Yeah. It's a, a, a you know, a calendar year. A year. Right? So 365. So we're already up to uh, 15,000. I don't know. 100,000. No, it's actually a bit less than that. It was about 55, 60,000, but it was a lot of gels to, to fuel. So on av- that's on average about four, three or four a day per Something person. Like it's quite a lot, and they've got. I think they have over three. I think they have three hundred days of racing or something like that. But it was just wow. an interesting, like, window into that world for me to look at the fact that. But the most, the the reason that that number is pretty high is that they're using them, you know, consistently yeah. to get high amounts of um, high amounts of carbs in when they're racing, but also trying to support their training because right. they obviously have a high training load. And interestingly, they've. They also alluded to the fact that over the years, cyclists used to eat a lot of energy bars and that sort of stuff. That was like a staple. And increasingly, they feel like they're moving away from those and moving more towards um, carbohydrate gels as being the predominant fuel of choice mm-hmm. for when they're on the bike. Mm. So, so all of this, when you see those books about feed zone portables with rice cakes and, uh, you know, infused with um you know, lots and lots of olive oil and high fat, high fat substances. Um, are they taking those on as well in their little um, yeah, little bags? I think they are. I think they eat, especially in Grand Tours and things where it's where mm. you're racing back to back days. I do believe there's a huge proportion that real food and more solid food plays in the nutrition of the riders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in one day races and high intensity stuff, I think you'll see them almost exclusively yeah. racing on sports nutrition products. So mm-hmm. I don't think that any of that feed zone stuff is um, is not legit. And I think it's a really good idea because I've been on camps and I actually went on a camp many years ago where Alan, Alan Lim, who did that feed zone book, yeah, yeah. Was on there, he was teaching us how to make the rice balls and that sort of thing. And they're fantastic, you know, really delicious. And the type of thing that if I was doing long rides these days in the winter, I'd, I'd love to take those on. But yeah, it's um, it's amazing how much emphasis the, the teams are placing on. Well, maybe it's not amazing, but it's it's revealing on the importance it plays with performance as to how much emphasis they place on practicing their nutrition on a daily basis with the the volume of training. Because I always think that cycling is an interesting one to look at for that because the volume of racing and the volume of hours that cyclists do far mm-hmm. exceeds pretty much any other Mm-hmm. endurance activity maybe except cross-country skiing just just because the the impact factor is so low but the energy demands are so high mm. you, if anyone knows about the the requirements of fueling to actually sustain consistency it's it's a you know pro tour cyclist really i did a um trying to think of his name now dave dave, dave bailey he used to be a physiologist at loughborough he, he and he was working in switzerland for nestle um on on their sports nutrition and then he worked for some pro teams um uh, advising and guiding some of the athletes i think he worked for bmc for a while but he was talking about you know traditional periodization models training and you think 
actually pro cycling is nothing like you'd imagine just because there's so much racing you have to look for short blocks of time and oft, often the training is done on the bike you know you're just gonna you're gonna go to this you're gonna go to this short five-day tour and you're just gonna ride um 200k a day and that's it and just sit and do a lot of steady work in the peloton yeah it's all they do they they often will, will sort of yeah I suppose less less so these days race themselves fit because they'll have those of them that are specialising in the classics and the one-day stuff who will be training specifically at the moment to get themselves ready for mm. that and others will be focused on the Grand Tours. But, yeah, the amount of the sheer volume of racing they do just means that a lot of that conditioning work probably does happen through through the racing rather than purely through the training. Well, especially look at um, Van der Poel or... Um, uh... Van Aert and Tom Pidcock, they're all doing a full-on cyclocross season, yeah, aren't they, at this time of year? Yeah, racing for an hour flat out, yeah. you know, and then in the summer be racing for, you know, multi, multi-day multi stage races. Mm-hmm. Amazing the range. It'd be like, it, well, it is like what the Norwegians are doing in one respect in triathlon, in racing sprint distance, World Series races and winning Ironman. Yeah, I've got. I know we're getting close to um, when we need to finish, Andy. But uh, there's a few more things I wanted to pick up on. Um, you you were talking about um, a lot of these case studies have been done on your elite athletes and on your pros, and and we were talking about economy and efficiency of movements and being well fat adapted. And I guess that the, the elite end of the race, um, those athletes just do, do tend to be. Um, biomechanically, genetically, and and conditioning wise, um, more more economic in the movement in all three disciplines, and perhaps don't burn through glycogen. But they, I suppose, then that might be that that might be um, nullified at the other end by the fact that they can operate at a higher level. Do you do you find significant differences in the operating level, and therefore um, the, the usage of carbohydrates versus fats in age groupers versus pros? Um, I think that what we've seen is um, typically that the pros will hit higher higher numbers of consumption than than the age groupers doing similar races probably because they are just operating at a higher intensity mm-hmm. and need more energy so to give you a concrete example of that we did cut we did crunch some aggregate numbers for kona we only had this is a this is a sample of 11 athletes so it's not a huge sample but it's enough to draw some mm-hmm. conclusions from the pros consumed on average about 22% more carbohydrate um, per hour than the age groupers. So the, and it, we were about, I think we were five pros and six age groupers. And to be clear, the age groupers were all fairly top age groupers, people who are either aiming for a medal or to win in their age group. The, the pros took in on average 96 grams of carb an hour and the age groupers on average was 79 grams per hour. So you see a pretty clear trend there that the, that the pros were, were fueling more aggressively. Um, we also saw that when we looked at um, average carbohydrate intake across the pros and the age group, as it was about 85 grams an hour in Kona. But then if we look at all of the Ironman case studies we've got, the the average was closer to 66 grams an hour across all of the case studies. And one of the potential theories for that was the fact that obviously Kona is a, is a championship race. We're, we're looking at the faster, more elite end of the sport yeah. there. And that when we've got more amateur case studies from just um, more 
uh, well, the qualification Ironman races where overall you'd imagine the standard is a bit lower, then it's the carbohydrate consumption wasn't as high either. So that's so that's quite interesting to me. So even even in in Kona, where you've got the elite end of the age group, are still probably racing at quite a, a lot higher intensity than your your the rest of the age groupers. There's still twenty. Well, it's not twenty two percent less. Is it's more like thirty percent less? Twenty two percent more consumption for the for the pros. So, it, um, is that because they're more aggressive, or is that just because they're more um, they're more educated about what they need? Uh, I think I think. Well, it's, it's a really difficult question to, to answer, honestly. You know, we we know the kind of advice and the kind of protocols that we suggest to the athletes we work with. And in general, I would say the advice tends to be around when we start working with people, there's very few people that we're reducing the amount of carbohydrate that they're taking in. We're tending to nudge the numbers up. And with the pro athletes, so there's a, the, the pros that we're talking about there are a group who we've largely been working with for at least a year or two. So mm-hmm. it might just be that there's some skewing of the data by the fact that these are people that we're advising to take a little bit more in. I, with. Have you read Burn by Herman Ponser? Yeah. So in there, he talks about, he refers to Michael Phelps's claim that he was eating 12,000 calories a day and sort of breaks that down a bit and shows that how um, how fanciful it might have been. But he does allude to the fact there that sometimes what enables certain individuals tolerate super high loads of training is the fact that their stomachs are just genetically better able to process calories than others and so therefore they can refuel because if you're not you know you can't tolerate high loads of training unless per your point about recovery you can refuel from it maybe there's a maybe i mean it again is my theory way off here that maybe the reason some of those pros are so good is they just are yet genetically better able to tolerate calories. And so they can sustain higher loads of training and, and racing for longer. It's it's certainly not, it, it's certainly not a ridiculous thing to assume that they've got some kind of, you know, they are, they are better at fueling in some way or another. Like we definitely see it with someone like Leon Chevalier, although we've worked with him, to encourage him to understand these numbers a bit better and work them up. He's never had a problem hitting high numbers of carbohydrate. Mm. This isn't like he's had to go through some pain barrier to do so. And he's been nudging it up really high in training on occasions. Like we saw him 130 plus grams an hour on the bike in Kona. Um, and he doesn't appear to have any GI issues with that. So you've got to look at that and say, well, actually his gut appears to be pretty to- tolerant of that. How much of that is genetic versus training? The other thing is that pros are obviously, you would imagine the average pro is clearly going to have a higher overall training load than the average age grouper. So he's probably just going to be eating more generally, both in and out of training. Mm. So there's lots of reasons why it's plausible. And and I suppose if you if you sat back and thought, what would you predict you would see? You'd probably predict that you'd see higher energy intakes from people racing at the pointier end of the race but i think what's nice about the case that is we're actually able to examine those those sort of those assumptions and see if they're borne out or not have you found anything that went against what you thought you know that that completely blew out the water the conventional wisdom or is it is just are you just confirming everything that you've always suspected definitely not there's definitely been some cases that haven't that 
that haven't stacked up. I think if you'd have said to us before, would an athlete taking 28 grams of carbohydrate an hour get on the podium at the 70.3 Worlds, you would say that's unlikely, you, you know, but with what we've seen from Emma doing that is that she was able to do it for whatever mm-hmm. reason. You know, the, like we said, maybe because she's carb loaded and we're very the fitness aspect and the determination and the will to win at that level over a race of that duration clearly means that you can do it without necessarily getting a textbook optimal fueling plan so that was that was of interest because we ran those numbers several times to make sure we got them right because i thought that doesn't look right you know but it was it was easy to work out because she had a very good strong recollection of what she'd taken and the reasons why she hadn't taken whatever she wanted to we've definitely seen some extremes that i didn't necessarily expect to see in terms of fluid consumption mm-hmm. I, I've heard of people talking about taking three bottles, you know, like one and a half liters an hour during an Ironman, but sus- never suspected that it was. It, we, we've typically said to people that anything approaching a liter an hour is a very, very high level of fluid consumption mm. compared to what we got or to be able to tolerate. Yet we've got a couple of case studies in Kona of people taking 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 liters an hour, which seem very legitimate because they're coming from credible people who we've we've done the best that we can to measure those intakes mm. so i think it just gives an appreciation for where those outliers and outer limits are in in general it does a lot of what we're seeing supports what's recommended in the scientific literature you know above 60 grams an hour for fueling iron man for example appears mm. to be what the faster athletes are, are doing and are able to do one thing i think that's worth commenting on is the fact that this trend of talking about very, very high carbohydrate intakes, you know, you hear the Norwegians talking about very high levels of carbohydrate mm. intake and a lot of hundred people pushing 120 grams an hour in trail ultra distance trail running and Ironman and stuff. There are, there are clearly cases where that's happening, but when you start to look at the aggregate numbers, what you realize is that even doing more than 60 grams an hour is good going. You know, and so mm. what people shouldn't be, and and I think if you're like the majority of people listening to this are going to be more in the in the age group ranks, you shouldn't be suddenly thinking that you've got to aspire to 90, 120 grams an hour to support whatever you're doing. I think what you've got to do is look at what you're doing, experiment potentially if it's on the lower end, experiment with increasing it, but not being not you in the same way as obvious as it sounds is we all get excited about athletes pushing 350 watts in a, you know, for an Ironman <laughs> ride. That's not, that's not for everyone. That's not possible for everyone mm. necessary for everyone. So there has to be a, those, those headline numbers grab a lot of attention, mm. but there's no way that everyone is doing or should be aspiring to take really really high amounts in it's just interesting that to push the envelope when it comes to the, the elite end of performance you got you you know remembering that people like leon are going he went 755 in kona you know this is a truly exceptional performance it's a performance that ironically would have won the race pretty much any year except this year mm-hmm. I think once or twice anyone had ever gone faster mm. uh, so when you look at it through that lens you don't you don't then compare it to yourself and go well maybe i should be doing 105 grams an hour it's like hang mm. on a minute. you're not running a 242 marathon off the bike so. um just going back to something you mentioned again about emma and you mentioned it a couple of times now about preloading um so this is what you're doing in the days before the event and you know, going back 
in time back to the 60s and 70s there was this big thing about carbohydrate loading and the traditional one there was to completely you know denude your body of carbohydrates for a few days do some high intensity training wait until you were completely drained and then eat eat all the carbs you could until everything came flooding back in and that's a fairly imprecise way that's got plenty of flaws and um, timing issues um briefly what would a pre a preloading strategy look like for an athlete these days is it is it about sports nutrition products or is it just about upping the level of carbohydrates you're having with each meal time yeah it's about it's about increasing carbohydrate intake at the same time that you're tapering training off because usually in the days prior to a race you are naturally tapering your training off so your energy burn drops and if at the same time you can increase your carbohydrate intake one of the first things that happens is that you get a super compensatory effect in the muscles that you actually start to store extra glycogen and pack it away ready for race day the you don't necessarily need to use any specific products or anything special to do that but sports nutrition can play a role because the characteristics of good foods for carbo loading is that they're high in carbs but actually low in fiber so where where you would where it would differ from normal healthy eating advice is mm-hmm. that you're going to want to favor things that are kind of like white and mm-hmm. like white bread white pasta cereals um low fiber cereals sport energy drinks you know like carbohydrate drinks are a good source of extra carbs or even energy chews and those kind of things because what studies have shown is that if you can eliminate a large amount of the fiber that you take in when you take in carbohydrates in the last few days you end up with less residual fiber in your system so you end up retaining less water in that you can actually you could it could be as much as several hundred grams in terms of extra weight but also it reduces the likelihood of you needing you know sort of bathroom stops on race day because you're overloaded with fiber so whereas for the vast majority of the year your healthy eating advice around getting more fibrous foods more vegetables more fruits and things with carbohydrates in you're going to be better off with using kind of more simple base Kind of anyone who's got kids is the kind of food that your toddlers will eat. You know, yeah, like children's beige, birthday party stuff. Yeah, beige carbohydrates basically are going to be your, are going to be your favourites in those last sort of two to three days. And mm. what there are there are like recommendations for the amount of grams per kilo body weight and that sort of thing. Which we've got some blogs on that on our website if people want to dive into the detail. But what I tend to say is to a lot of people to keep it simple is just make sure that whatever your normal carbohydrate consumption is with a meal then you would swap out some of the some of the fats some of the fibers and some of the proteins and swap in an extra portion of carbs so rather than rather than being too rigid on aiming for getting the scales out and weighing stuff Mm. it's like extra portions of simple carbohydrate foods plain carbohydrate foods with so breakfast might go from being just a bowl of porridge to some porridge with honey and also some white toast and bread and that sort of thing so you you just put extra portion in with each meal and some extra snacks Mm. and you know that way you'll you'll load up pretty well and you won't have that burden of extra fiber with it everybody loves pre-race wake eating Uh, pre-race week eating don't they (laughs) Yeah, until until you get to about twenty four hours out, and then you you're absolutely sick of it. But yeah, yeah, you should you should go into a race therefore like probably a kilo or two heavier than your standard weight because the extra glycogen, the extra water that's held with it, and that's that's not a disadvantage. That's extra stores to be drawing on late in the event. Yeah, that's just like putting extra water pouches on your camel, isn't it? When you're going across the desert. 
100%. Yeah. Well, Andy, that's been really insightful. Thank you. Um, we've, I think you've, you've confirmed a lot of uh, things for me that I thought I already knew. You've also uh, taught me a few new things there. So every day is a learning day for all of us. Um, hopefully, listeners, it's been the same for you. Uh, Andy has shared a lot of links that I will be putting on to the show notes. So please do make sure you go and look at those. Very definitely go and have a look at the case studies. Um, read some of the blogs. And please do take Andy's advice. If you're interested, and you should be, if you're really interested in top performance next year at events, if you're interested in uh, having a conversation with one of Andy um, or with one of Andy's colleagues or himself, please do that in good time before your events because you do need to be practicing these nutrition strategies well in advance in the same way you would do spending time on your triathlon bike or testing out a new pair of running shoes. So um, those are going to be in there. Uh, you probably don't want to be doing it in January unless you're racing in in um, an early season race, but make sure you put it in your diary and book it in a good time because I know that these uh, the number of these calls that are going to be made after listening to this and other podcasts are going to be going up. So you want to make sure that you're on the uh, on the timetable. Andy, thanks so much. I hope you feel better soon. It's been great as always and uh, have a good Christmas. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Simon. Always, always lovely to chat, and um, yeah, can't wait to hear from some of your your listeners. And we, we, yeah, we want to have a chat with them in the new year. Brilliant. Thanks, Andy. Cheers. Now, cheers. Bye bye. Thank you again to Andy for being my guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, you can find links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. Make sure you look out for those links with the case studies and to book your free phone call. And please don't leave it until the last minute before your big race of 2023. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. Also, when you're going through the show notes, please don't forget to look out for the links for joining my SWAT community. And if you are interested in one-to-one coaching, remember that I have some slots opening in January. So if you're interested in that, there's a link you to email me simon at the triathloncoach.com that's all for now have a great week and i will see you on the next episode